Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track podcast. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. My name's Stu Whiffin, I'll be your host today. And joining me today is Tom Whitwell. Uh, Tom is a, a journalist, uh, essentially. Um, he was the uh, former editor of Digital for the Times. Um, he was the editor of the uh, Music Thing. Uh, he was the editor of Mixmag. Uh, he was the deputy editor of The Face. So with them kind of credentials, uh, we knew that we was going to have a good chat about music, and Tom did not disappoint Um had a huge knowledge of uh, of music uh, and definitely had me on the back foot as well. Um, there was a few things where I just thought, God, I've not heard of that. Um, so it's always nice to uh, have your music knowledge uh, tested. Um, before we get on with the episode, um, a big shout out to uh, Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, thank you to 76 for producing this podcast. Um, and also, if you enjoy this podcast, there's um, a Spotify playlist uh, to accompany it with all the uh, tracks that the artist picks on there. Uh, as as well as that, uh, I have a Patreon page, which um, is essentially like a kind of crowdfunding type Kickstarter thing. But but basically, all it means is um, you can sign up for um, a month at a time, and I put out four episodes a month um, outside of my, my usual. Uh, Friday releases so um, yeah each week you get a standalone episode over on Patreon um, you can find out all about anything to do with Off The Beaten Track at offthebeatentrackpodcast.com and as well as that if that's still not enough podcasting for you go and have a look at www.podbiblemag.com Pod Bible is the magazine that is uh, set up, owned and run by myself, Scroobius Pip and Adam Richardson. Adam does the artwork uh, for the Off the Beaten Track podcast, if you're wondering who Ad is. Um, and we have been going over a year now. It's a print magazine and a digital magazine. Um, you can get the print copies um, as they now get uh, distributed nationally uh, inside the Sunday Times. Uh, you can find out all about this at uh, podbiblemag.com, but we also have a podcast as well, a weekly podcast. It's only a short one. It's about 20 minutes long, uh, and we have all your favourite podcasters on there talking about their podcast, and also they recommend the podcast that they really enjoy listening. Like a short magazine show hosted by myself, Pip and Adam. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, some of the guests that we've had on there, uh, No Such Thing as a Fish, 
Kate Thornton, Cariad Lloyd, Jade Adams, uh, the Gossip Mongers guys, Joe Wilkinson, David L, Poppy Hillstead, Johnny Vaughan. Oh, blimey. I'm, I'm missing loads. We've literally had a, a who's who's of podcasters on there. So go and check that out if you want some uh, some recommendations of some other great podcasts to listen to. All right, let's get back to this podcast. And uh, it gives me great joy to say, please enjoy Off The Beaten Track with Tom Whitwell. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk official sponsors of Off The Beaten Track Podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we're recording. Sitting opposite me today is Tom Whitwell. Hello. Hi, hello. So we've not met before. Um, the, the, the office that we're sitting in right now uh, is owned by my colleague Ben, um, who uh, initially reached out to you many, many moons ago with uh, some, uh, some music that he was making, and you're going to be chatting to him uh, after this. Um, but for the purposes of Off The Beat and Track podcast, we always start with the same question, and that's the song with the greatest ever intro. So I found this a really difficult question. I should say that you've given me a load of answers for every single one. I've so. given you three, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I found this really... I've, in fact, I found the whole thing really difficult. And it, it was really interesting to sit and try and answer a question like that because, I mean, it's an obvious thing, but there is so much... You know, when you look back, you know, I'm in my, my mid to late 40s, and you look back and think you've got, you know... And actually, when you start looking at this, you've got 40 years of actively listening to and absorbing music and 
and just the the idea of say the idea of a question was the song with the greatest intro was was just like how could I even begin to yeah. to answer that uh, and so the three the three that I wrote down there which obviously could be any three other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one I wrote down was this record, uh, Welcome by Harmonia, which is the obscure, kind of weird, interesting one. I'm not familiar with this. So Harmonia are a um, one of those kind of German kraut rock bands of the 70s. Mm-hmm. So they were uh, in a band called Cluster and people in another band called Neu, who you will know from oh, that, right. that kind of okay. era. And in the kind of early 70s, I think 1971, they moved to this completely rural, like a town, a village in rural Saxony in Germany, uh, bought an old sort of farmhouse or something by a river. Um, And they just sat in there making this kind of pastoral kind of music, sort of rock music. Um, And in uh, one of these kind of great sort of legends of 70s music, 1976, uh, Brian Eno turns up. You know, he'd oh, okay. heard about them and had, you know liked their records before. He turned up and um, kind of hung out with them a bit and made some music with them. And uh, they made this amazing album called uh, Tracks and Traces, which didn't come out till sort of mid-90s. Um, but when you listen to this record, you hear all these elements that appear in later Brian Eno records, and they were obviously very... <laughs> quite conscious of this they were yeah. like oh here's you know something that sounds like chunks of u2 albums or or um, just his kind of era and he went from that on to doing the the famous sort of david bowie mm-hmm. berlin records and this is the first track on the first side of that that harmonia album um and it's a kind of weird it's weird to say to describe it as a great intro because it's literally the most sort of it just starts i think it actually has a it actually fades in um, but it's just this incredible kind of peaceful pastoral piece of music that whenever whenever I hear it, it's like you kind of breathe in deeply and you're immediately taken to a very kind of different yeah. kind of peaceful kind of place. And I, the, the other reason I think is just because it has these incredible stories around it. You know, yeah. that, that, that whole era, one of the people playing on it is... Um, uh, whose name I've now momentarily forgotten. It has the, you know that that whole world of Germany in the Cold War, yeah. where you had you know the country was divided. Sure. You had the the kind of Bader Meinhof gang were all connected with all yeah. these people. So these incredible stories and the, the idea of these people who pick up, move away into this kind of pastoral place, and uh, it just all comes across in that music. Wonderful. I mean, the next one's probably a, a different end of the spectrum uh, of, uh, of, of, you know, we'll just keep it in Europe. So the, ne- the next one was then, I was thinking, what, what, that, that's a ridiculous to, to say your greatest intro is a record that literally just fades into the yeah. kind of playing. When you think of actual greatest intros of all time, <laughs> what I've said there was Take a Chance on Me by ABBA, which sure. you can almost not say it without hearing that intro. And I think this was, again, a lot of these questions we're talking about when you sort of your first records and records sure. that you, 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 of your early life. And I was trying to, trying to work this out yesterday, and I would have been about sort of seven or eight or nine when that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, even younger, six or seven when that came out. Um, 
And I have quite clear memory of somehow being aware of ABBA and all those records, that one, and kind of giving giving those records. Mm -hmm. I think probably watching like Swap Shop or something on Saturday morning and the impact of this kind of incredible, just kind of wall of sound of those records and the incredible songwriting and the very attractive Swedish women for a a, six or seven-year-old boy. You definitely do notice those things. Uh, And so in terms of just that, that first kind of impact, you just, you start to see records, you know, it certainly is somewhere in the back of my head. Absolutely. I mean, if you're going to look at, I mean, I often speak to musicians on on, on this podcast about the importance of intro and, and how they uh, may write and, you know, construct their records now with the importance on, on, on intro in the world where music is so, disposable and quick now and it's in abundance via all your streaming services but I mean I guess if you're going to look at writing perfect pop records you've got to go some to be ABBA's output really haven't you and I mean uh, as soon as I see that take a a chance on me I instantly just think Dancing Queen's an incredible intro isn't it absolutely yeah Yeah. it's Yes, it's going to be that song that gets, you know, your it's grandparents... people running across the nightclub. It, it, it really anywhere is. Anywhere in the it world. It is. Yeah. But <laughs> as much as you've heard it a million times, it's because it's, a, it's a, just a joyous record, isn't yeah. it? And it is... Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, all of those records are just... They are just remarkable. I mean, I would never... They are those things that you've heard so many times that you just never want to actually... Yeah. <laughs> Completely, yeah. But occasionally they pop into your life yep. at some point and it's, a, it's, it's still an extraordinary yeah. thing. Well, you sent me three. And then the third one, again, I was just thinking about records that have, have memorable intros. And so this, one of the, the, you know, I suppose we're again back in kind of 70s, you know, David Bowie worlds. Um, and the third one I picked was the song of the idiot, Peggy Pop, um, called Dum Dum Boys, which, again, it's not like a great musical intro. It's not going to grab you on Spotify, but it has this intro with um, Dum Dum Boys are the Stooges that he's referring back to, and he talks about... It's literally this kind of little spoken word intro with him talking about what happened to the other members of the band. Uh, and then it just kind of slides into the song. And in some ways, it's similar to that Harmonia one, in that it's almost yeah. physically you feel the song kind of grinding into gear wonderful okay for track two Tom the first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you so on there when I'm thinking about it I said I I have a really clear recollection of listening you know around a friend's house I must have been I don't know probably 10 10 11 years old um, hearing uh Dare by the Human League, mm-hmm. um, and just somehow that having a very, very immediate. This isn't like a sort of nice, interesting pop record. I'd heard those other records, and I think, but suddenly this was something that was somehow kind of cool and interesting. And the first song on that is that song about um, uh, it's the things that dreams are made of, and he's mm-hmm. talking about all these things happening in you know that you want to do around the world, and just that that again the combination of a great pop record but this extraordinary kind of production that just sounded like nothing else in the world and just came out the speakers at you 
Um, so what would that emotion have been? I don't know. That emotion would have just been, um, you know, it would have been interest. It would have been a, that would have been. I suppose it's a it's a fake it's a fake answer. Yeah. It would have been a kind of curiosity. Curiosity, but also it's a feeling that there is that feeling about identity. There's something about, yeah. you know, there's there's records that you you love and are you know like ABBA records are these extraordinary yeah. things that happen to you when you hear them. Um, but then, if you are a geeky bloke, and possibly lots of other people as well, there are records that are something about there's something about an identity, and you're becoming somebody marginally different because you've heard this and you hear yeah. something different. Another record I was thinking of for that one, which was at exactly the same time, exactly the same same scenario, would have been um, "Frigging in the Rigging" by the Sex Pistols. Right. Which I'm sure you remember. Time if you were, if you were a child of that age, how old are you? Always, Tom? I'm 47 now. Right, so I'm nearly, I'm just about to turn 47. So yeah. yes, but exactly I know exactly so. what you're so saying. So you would have always had a old a friend at school who had an older brother who had whichever Sex yeah. Pistols single it was the B-side of. Yeah. And it was this kind of illicit, terribly rude thing that you could hear. That what was, was frigging in the rig in the B-side of? I don't, I don't know. I haven't looked it up. Because it, was, it, it wasn't rotten singing it, was it? No, so maybe it was in the kind of um, rock and roll swindle. Rock and roll swindle era, yeah. It could have been, yeah, yeah. It was around the time of sort of Who Killed Bambi, and mm. and, and and it might even have been the B side of that. I don't know. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was just. Uh, but that was the entry into a, a naughty grown-up world. Completely. Was, but there was not the kind of because a lot of comedy at that stage was that kind of adult, you mm. know, Sid James thing. This yeah. wasn't that. This was somehow much more. You know, even yeah. even more carry on than that. It was, a, it, yeah, it was your, your vinyl version of a video nasty, wasn't it? Exactly that. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, so whereabouts was you born? I was born in. Well, I was born in Oxford, but grew up in Bristol. So most, you know, I spent most of my time in Bristol. Okay. Um, and went to school in Bristol. Um, was there until I left and went to university. I mean, I should also say that you, you, you've sent us a few more for, for this yeah. one as well, and and, and I'm, I'm sensing a theme already. Um, but you know, do you want to talk about some of the other songs? So that was that was the 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 Human League one was a kind of current pop record mm. that I heard with friends. The other thing we had at home was my my it didn't go in one of those in a, like a musical family that listened to music all the time. My parents would listen to kind of Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen and that kind of thing, but it wasn't a big listen to music sort of household. But I remember we had a few kind of cassettes, and we had cassettes of. A like a Vangelis compilation and a Jean-Michel Jarre Oxygen mm -hmm. album, and I've no idea how they got there. I imagine they must have been given to my parents by somebody, um, and they were another thing where you just put it on and you listen to it, and you were in this completely, you know, those are extraordinary and kind of weird records, but that yeah. a a kind of nine, ten, eleven year old can listen to and suddenly go, there's something very, very kind of different in this world. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I think there's definitely, yeah, there was an element I remember, and you know, listening to, the, haven't listened to either of those records for for pretty much since yeah. since then, but you put them on and you listen to it, and it's immediately something that is a is a kind of just different from what was you know pop music, but not difficult or weird or cool yeah. music. Um, it was just something that I think stuck with you. I think lots of people who heard those records, it kind of stuck with them that that. Kind of aesthetic. That's just that that a very different type of music from what you were hearing. Was you normally. always sort of 
drawn to something a little more alternative and something maybe more different? I don't know. I think I think a little bit, yeah. Because as I said, you're a you know, slightly pretentious, geeky man, and yeah. you, know, you want to have something that sets you out as having a little bit of, you know, that that is about defining your identity yeah. a little bit. And I mean, around the time that we was probably, whoa, blimey, 11, 12, would have been Destination Docklands, I think. And yes, I think it was, yeah. I, I mean, I remember, I remember seeing the, the Houston one. Rendezvous Houston. On, on TV. And, I mean, I think that was a few These years These are Jimmy Sharp Yeah, uh, I, I do remember seeing about. that and that just being the most extraordinary thing. Yeah. I, was that I, the laser harp? That had laser harp, and had, but it was more the buildings. It yeah. was the kind of, it was the... You know the the little geezer in the middle was slightly embarrassing, but the 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 idea of and I, I looked at bits of that on YouTube, you know, a couple of years ago, and it, and it it was an extraordinary thing that idea of taking over this entire city, mm. projecting stuff over all the skyscrapers, um, and that certainly had a, a that just seemed like an extraordinary thing. It seemed like a very long way yeah. away from from my world. Yeah, <laughs> growing in Bristol. I was, t- I was probably too young to go. My parents would have had no idea who uh, Jimmy Chauvet was, but I could I could see Docklands from from my bedroom window. So, wow! Uh, I mean, see the lasers. We, we, we was we was along the Thames, but yeah. we could we could see the lasers, and it was yeah. I couldn't hear anything, but yeah. it was like wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, for track three, the song that reminds you of your time at school. So this obviously, you know, the, this is another one of how you how would you try and try and capture one song one song out of all that um and i think that that was where again you you had you know there's definitely when you look back at that period there's a lot of things where you're like that was something that knowing about that being interested in that made you feel cool made you feel different made you feel you know interesting in some way so um you know, the records I put down there were, you know, I remember listening to Prince, and as soon as you listen to Prince, you're this enormous... And Prince was obviously an enormous pop star. I remember going going to... I did a kind of schools exchange, went to America, and was astonished to go in America that people didn't like Prince, that he was kind of, yeah. you know, you know, held in very little regard, was very, felt very suspicious, you know. Yeah. Your, aver- your average teenager in a, in a small town in America did not talk about Prince or didn't, yeah. didn't like that. It was much too weird for that. Um, but that's somebody who, you know, all through my, my life would have, would have listened to him and was, you know, I was able to see him for the first time when he played at the Roundhouse just, you know, probably a year before he died, yeah. which was absolutely one of the most incredible yeah. you know, shows I've ever seen because it was, it was purely him doing greatest hits as an entertainer and seemingly relishing it and enjoying it and literally just showing off to the crowd I had written far more incredible songs than anyone else and he would play little 30 second 90 second two minute clips of everything <laughs> um, and it was an amazing just an amazing amazing thing to see what more would you want from a night out than that it was was pretty good I actually I remember at the end of it coming out and just thinking I'm a little bit sad because that was something I always wanted to see that and now that's ticked off and yeah. I d- didn't really have uh, I can't think of many people on an obvious kind of band bucket list now that I would yeah. want to see given the way they are now yeah. you know you, you might want to see 
You know, you might want to see Bob Dylan playing in the early 70s, but you really wouldn't want to see Bob Dylan playing now. No. <laughs> so, so many people that's true of. Yeah. Um, and to see him in what felt like absolutely as good as it could be at that stage yeah. was, was absolutely just, you know, it was incredible. Yeah. Similarly to the, the, those Kate Bush concerts. You know, the Did you get to them? Concert. Yeah, they were, they were very similar in that, again, you would kind of like to play a few more of her greatest hits, yeah. but still... It was an amazing thing, and an amazing, just the feeling in the in the crowd as well. You know, yeah. there, was, there was even though she was doing a whole run of them, you know, you just had this extraordinary sense of uh, of an occasion of of kind of just love between the crowd and the yeah. and the audience there. So other ones, you know, as a, as a as a teenager in you know growing up in in Bristol, I can again clearly remember. Being around a different friend's house, um, and him saying, "I've got this, you know, I've got this record you could hear," and him putting on um, "Nation of Millions" by Public Enemy, which again, as a as a teenager, spotty sort of sixteen year old teenage boy, was just an incredible thing to hear and to yeah. hear that. And again, that that it's almost that kind of visceral feeling. You can you can always still feel that coming out of the speakers at you for the first time you hear a record like that. And. And I mean, blimey, if we're talking intros, then Public Enemy's got a fair, yes. a fair few of those. Yeah. Um, but I, I think uh, growing up where I, I did, we was exposed to sort of, you know, hip-hop where you could get it. You know, yeah. that'd be few and far between. You know, you'd see the electro albums in the, yeah. in the record store windows. I could never really afford them. Yeah. And, you know, you'd occasionally hear some, some hip-hop on the radio and, and occasionally you get some sort of, not necessarily great hip hop on top of the pop, some yeah. sort of novelty. But the first time you hear Public Enemy, yeah, it's a it's a slap on the chops, isn't it? It's yeah. it's they're not messing around, are they? And it's yeah. like, whoa, this is not like any hip hop I've heard before. Yeah. This is this. I think Chuck's delivery is incredible, yeah. and having Flav the Clan just. Yeah. You know, intertwined just works so well, and yeah, yeah uh, I got that exact feeling the first time I heard Straight Outta Compton as well. Yeah. It yeah. was just yeah, just jarring. And, yeah. And uh, have you seen Public Enemy? Yes, I saw them uh, when I saw them in the Brixton Academy. Oh wow! In um, the Fear of a Black Planet tour, so the tour nice. after that. So it was very, you know, would have been about 17, 18 or something yeah. and came up. And that, again, you felt like that was a very exciting thing. And you looked around, whereas most of the audience were also 17, 18 year old white boys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you absolutely. You know, it's like I, I, now, I now have a 16 year old son and he goes and sees uh, Tyler the Creator yeah. uh, at the Brixton Academy. And yeah. you just think, I'm sure this is really it's a very, very, very similar, similar kind yeah. of effect. Brilliant. Um, but yeah, it was an an amazing, amazing thing. And Sonic Youth. Yeah, and then at that same time, so so it was interesting. You're talking about um, the way you would see hip hop was kind of on. It was hard to get or hard to get. Yeah. To do. In in Bristol, you had you almost had a sense of a kind of conflict between the kind of indie kids and the the kind of hip hop. Which were then sort of eventually morphed into the kind of dance music. People. So, so was this point in in Bristol? Was this Wild Bunch and? So they would have been around. Yeah. Um, and you definitely had um, 
you know an audience for that. I remember, yeah. you know, you would see people like KRS One would come and play in Bristol. Yeah. Um, and I remember talking to talking to a guy in a in a you know popular indie band in Bristol, and you had you had this real sense of you know our audience. Where's our audience going? You know some. These people coming over and they're all going and listening to hip hop and it's yeah. losing, it's, it's stealing. A, you know, the cool kids are all listening to hip hop and they used to all listen to indie music. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's really interesting that sense when when those kind of those those moments when it changes between one. Yeah. And something. I remember years later. Um, so years later in the must have been the two yeah early early thousands. So. I'd been, I was working at Mixmag, I was editor of Mixmag, and so that was when dance music was the biggest, mm-hmm. it was everything. So so we would sort of write about these obscure 12 inches, and then six months later, they would all be the top 10 of the national chart. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, Ibiza was the biggest thing in the world. And you just, um, I remember, must have been probably, I don't know what year it was, 2002, 2003 or something, when the strokes appeared mm-hmm. and i actually remember seeing in like i don't know in a gym or on tv or somewhere seeing a fashion show with guitar music playing in it and just going what's that that's something you know yeah. that's that how is that how is that happening we've yeah. had the, you know nobody would have a fashion show with a guitar band playing yeah. in it and then the strokes came along and just really clearly thinking okay there is something something very different yeah. happening here the idea of uh, you know, people, you know, fashionable people standing around and dancing to 38-year-old DJs yeah. isn't going to be... <laughs> we're not going to be doing that yeah. for a while. Um, and I think you you had those sorts of moments happening, you know, in, yeah. the, in the where, the, where the, these kind of indie bands that you'd had all through the kind of 80s, I guess it was the post-punk bands, really, all through yeah. those 80s, Suddenly, in Bristol, hip hop came along, and then I said a couple of years later, dance music came along, and, and yeah. you really felt the kind of plates shifting. Mm. How was school? Good, very straightforward, kind of you know middle class, growing up in Bristol, um, kind of you know you're trying to find what your kind of identity is, what marks you out from other people. I think. Hello, I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search off the beat and track podcast and you can listen to all the songs because i've put playlists up for each of these if you can't find it on there i'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode so you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks anyway i'll shut up get back to the podcast see you on the other side what did you want to be when you was at school i don't know i i sort of I think I had a vague idea that doing some kind of journalism would be interesting, but I really had no... I I wasn't one of these people who was properly running, you know, successfully running fanzines when they were were 14, um, or 
the equivalent now of people who would run, you know, blogs or you know, sure. whatever. So, so, so I, I never really had that sort of drive and that kind of focus. Um, and I, I kind of went to school. I went to university and did politics at university. Um, Whereabouts? In Leeds, mm-hmm. um, which was a you know good place to be in the early nineties. And then I sort of I, I came out of that and thought, okay, I've got a project. I should see about, you know, journalism does seem like something that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, and went and did a kind of postgraduate journalism course. And there was this quite clear path that was laid out for you that you would do this newspaper journalism course. Then the idea was you'd go and work for a local newspaper. So you'd go and work for you know the Croydon Advertiser yeah. or the Bristol Evening Post or wherever it was. And then you would do well in that, and then you'd be promoted up, and you'd get to a national newspaper, and yeah. then that would be your career. And I kind of saw this and thought, well, that seems all right. And I went and did kind of work experience on local papers, and mm-hmm. like, seems okay. I mean, didn't I wasn't averse to that idea. Yeah. Um, and then uh, one day we had a we had the you get people from different magazines coming to visit and uh, the then editor of The Face came in to visit um, who was Richard Benson and he you know, did a talk and I said, you know, is there some would it be possible to do to do work experience maybe and he went and did work experience and suddenly, again, this entirely new world opened up and you thought, well actually, rather than writing about dog shows and local councils in Croydon, I could be working in, you know, writing about music and writing about bands yeah. and writing about culture and writing about interesting things that we found. Mm. And, you know, and this very, very different world. And suddenly, from that point, suddenly I really wasn't terribly interested in the idea of doing what I was going to yeah. do previously and thought that actually going and working in magazines would be a much more interesting and yeah. much more plausible yeah. thing that you could do. So, so eventually left you know, when I left that, managed to get, uh, you know, did lots of little bits of work experience and writing where you're trying to, and it's funny when you're when you start out, you have the, you have this idea that you have to you have to come up with ideas, obviously, and you come up with one idea and you hold it so tightly and you you go and pitch it to somebody, and there you see this incredibly experienced you know magazine editor who's probably you know 26, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah 24. Yeah. Um, and they go, oh, that's a great idea, but, and then they explain exactly why it is definitely yeah. not an idea. And then you, you've got no more ideas because you have that idea. Yeah. Uh, and I remember looking at those people and just thinking it was so extraordinary how, how clever they were and how they were able to, to do this. Yeah. How could they look at an idea and just immediately figure it out and work it out? Um, and it was very you know, gratifying when a couple of years down the line you realise, well, actually, I've now learned what yeah. they've learned. And you're able to do the same thing and you're able to, to kind of have that, that, you know, that beginning to have that mastery of a, sure. of a skill. So it's a very long way of answering no. where, I went to, where I went to school. <laughs> Track four, uh, the first record you remember buying from a record shop. So this again is is going, you're sending right back to kind of youth and and, and this, and. I think this is right, but I, I, I certainly remember buying it very clearly. I remember going out and buying uh, Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood um, and having somehow acquired some kind of old, almost like one of those kind of dance set record players with a sort of speaker built yeah. into it that somehow acquired from somewhere. Um, and 
I remember. I, I remember at that time. I was listening to. I was listening to John Peel in the evenings on Radio One. So I was aware of them kind of appearing and that record coming along. And then, you know, I went and bought the record. And I bought a twelve. So had you heard it before you? Yeah, bought yeah, it? I definitely heard it. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, I remember buying a twelve-inch of it, which had this kind of amazing, fairly sleeve. kind of you know fetish kind of yeah. sleeve. And then I was a bit disappointed when I got home because the twelve-inch of it has a eighteen-minute-long sex mix. <laughs> <laughs> it's, which is that is not the New York mix? It's called the sex mix, and it's basically you know grunting noises for oh, for eighteen minutes. Right, you don't want your folks hearing that, do you? <laughs> well, this is the thing, and and I I I was so you know taken by by them and by the whole ZTT and by you know the way Paul Morley created this whole kind of you know ludicrous kind of aura around them yeah. and the treble horn production of them, uh, and. And I'm pretty sure my parents were, were at that point very certain that I was gay. And I remember yeah. having a slightly, really kind of weird and slightly confusing conversation with them, which I think was them saying, that's fine, that's great, you know, yeah. that's right. And I think, looking back to it, really didn't see it at all. Yeah. I was like, this isn't the mix of the record I wanted. Yeah. I don't really want to listen to this one. It's kind of just boring. Yeah. And And just somehow completely sort of didn't didn't find it uncomfortable yeah or weird i mean yeah. you know i i'm sure if you'd said do you understand what this means i could have said yeah i do kind of understand yeah. it. but i didn't feel weird about it and it's, it's again a very funny thing when you have children i will now have a record that's got like one slightly weird you know one racy lyric in yeah. it or something and I'll feel kind of mortified playing yeah, it the children yeah, hearing yeah. it. And I can well imagine they would listen to it and just like the record. And you, you yeah. don't, you don't make it, you know, like listening to Purple Rain. You listen to Purple Rain and go, yeah, yeah I guess I can see that those are rude lyrics. But yeah. you somehow don't, don't, um, didn't feel, you didn't feel in any way kind of uncomfortable. You know, or I, I remember uh, Starling Nicky, isn't it? Yeah, I remember hearing like uh, ha having the album. Yeah, and always just thinking like if my folks are around, yeah. I can't play Darling Nikki. Yeah, that, that that's that's got some rude. I words, mean, that's isn't very it? very clear. What's going on on that one? Is it? There's no possible ambiguity. In that. <laughs> I love the fact that conversation with your parents was brought yeah. on because of the 18 well, minute sex mix of relax. I don't know. I, I've never actually I've never actually raised it with them. But I do, I do and, and I was just like. This is just a really rubbish. Really. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like this at all. Brilliant. <laughs> um, okay, so the record shops are an very early on an important place for you. So in in again this. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This kind of... And I'm very much looking back at sort of pretentious 16-year-old yeah. me. Um, where you're looking for something that is is distinctive and seems yeah. like it's a little bit cooler than the next person. And, you know, Sonic Youth, I love, would absolutely listen to Sonic Youth. I enjoy listening to Sonic Youth. I yeah. love that record, and it, and it is an amazing, kind of beautiful and interesting it's record. record. Um, but there was, a, there was a record shop in Bristol called Revolver Records, which was um, this completely independent shop. I had no shop front to get into. You had to kind of go up this little staircase. Um, and there's a wonderful book um, called Original Rockers by Richard King, which is the guy who worked in the shop. And it's fantastic to read this book, you know, 20 years later, find out just what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the business of the shop was extraordinary. He, he describes people would, would come in and they would, they would have suppliers who they would buy a stack of CDs from every, like, six months. And Richard going... I mean, we haven't sold any of the last lot. Should we really buy some more? Yeah. <laughs> and it would just build up and up and up. And he describes a stockroom at the back that was just mouldering and gently <laughs> gently rotting. Brilliant. Kind of just because they just bought more and more and more records. And you would go in there and it was obviously incredibly kind of intimidating as a, as a sort of, you know, little 15, 16-year-old yeah. kid. Because presumably looking at it now, there was, you know, 18 or 19-year-old kids yeah. um, and then, you know, 25-year-olds behind the counter. Um, but that was a place where you went and saw the most, you know, what seemed like the most exotic and weird and, and yeah. esoteric things. But you'd also see things like, you know, I remember there being a, like a Bristol fanzine of these kind of indie bands that had a cassette on the front and you'd buy that and you'd listen to it and you'd suddenly again kind of learn this whole kind mm. of world that you could, you could understand and be part of and it would give you this kind of identity so certainly Revolve Records very much that end of it but there was there was a fantastic record shop kind of scene in Bristol um, you had kind of Tony's Records that was more kind of dance records and, and hip hop records would have been in there and it was just it was a place that you would go and you know mill about irritatingly on a Saturday yeah. afternoon and not buy anything <laughs> Was you obsessive over music? I wouldn't say I was I wasn't a kind of enormous kind of collector, um, but I definitely think, you know, it was definitely a big chunk of my identity and the way I, I, I kind of defined myself, I suppose. Okay, so we're going to move forward um, to, uh, I imagine, a few years after you were 16, <laughs> um, to the song that soundtracked your time clubbing. So this was really difficult. As um, the editor of Mixmack, you must yeah. have done a lot of clubbing. Well, I went to a lot of clubs, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I. Is there a difference from a... going to clubs and well, clubbing? There is definitely. I mean, there's a, there's a. So, 
I was the editor of Mixed Mag, and I I loved the time I was there, and I loved that scene and the way being part of that when it was such. As I was saying in the in that sort of early, you know, I was there from sort of, I was there from probably ninety eight, ninety nine to about two thousand and three or something. So it was at its peak of that world. Um, but I was not somebody who was, you know, one of the, one of the things I was held in great suspicion of mixed mag because I didn't didn't do drugs. Yeah, which was obviously kind of separated me from yeah. people a bit. Um, and I wasn't somebody who had, I'd certainly been to plenty of clubs when I was certainly, you know, you imagine being at university in Leeds in the, mm-hmm. in the 90s, there were brilliant clubs to go to and you did go to them. Um, but it wasn't really my kind of core, sure. core my identity. Um, and what was really interesting with that question was looking back over that period, there were all these records that that I remember at the time being very exciting and certainly within when you're when you're a mix mag you had this cycle of a record would appear and you would hear about it and then you might actually hear it and then you'd get a copy of it and then over this kind of six month period it would be this incredibly important cultural you know artifact it'd be, it'd be sure. an important piece that, that people talk about so a record like um Music Sounds Better With You mm-hmm. by Starlight, if you, you, which was um, Thomas Bangalter, I think, mm-hmm. wasn't it? That, a record like that was incredibly important for that six months, a mm. year. And now you look back and you're like, I mean, I it's a nice record. I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't especially want to listen yeah. to it now. Um, it's definitely a good record. And I you know, guess within that, you know, there are places where that would be a, a great record to have come on in a club yeah. or something, but it's not... As a piece of, as a, it's lost that power of being an artifact and being excited. And I think you saw that. I remember that over and over again. So I would be really, really obsessed by a piece of music or a scene or by a, something that was happening. And then when you look back at it, you know, almost 20 years on, sure. it just, you kind of feel like that, that wasn't really the core of it. The core of it was that experience going out and the, the 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 incredible kind of just cultural moment that that was you yeah know, stretching all over the world which is now kind of even bigger probably but that idea of something that was stretching from you know a little nightclub in Essex to some kind of luxury hotel in Miami sure. to Ibiza um, was just to me a more exciting bigger source yeah. of stories and source of kind of memories than Often, you know, I can't remember what records they were playing at Manu Mission when I went there, but I can yeah. remember going, you know, the times you went to that club. Yeah. Um, so it was those that kind of thing. So looking back at it, it's hard to pick records where you just go, actually, that's a really exciting. Yeah. You know, the records I like from that yeah. era, obviously, but it's it was interesting. And I, until you asked that question, I had never sort of made that that connection almost. Yeah. Okay. Track six. Favorite song from an artist from your home county. So this was really, this was difficult in that the the really obvious and probably true answer would be, you know, if you were growing up in Bristol and you were eighteen in nineteen ninety, then um, Massive Attack and that whole you know scene that emerged from that 
was incredibly exciting and incredibly um, important. And you know, you, you listen to those records because they were so um, of that place as well. It's yeah. not like it was a nice record that was, you know, a Rolling Stones knockoff that happened to be made in your town. Mm. Those were very much records that were very much of that yeah. that town and that era and and the way they had evolved up to that point. So it wasn't like they just appeared from there. As you said, you had you had kind of Wild Bunch and you had um, uh, Smith and Mighty, you know, and you'd be aware of these interesting records. So people like Smith and Mighty were putting out these great records in sort of I guess, 89, 90, that sort of time. So you were aware of them and you were kind of excited by them. Mm. And then for something as extraordinary as that, that Massive Attack album to come along. Um, I mean, I remember hearing, um, it seems like, I'm sure I remember hearing Unfinished Sympathy being played in, in a nightclub. Mm. It seems like not really a particularly nightclubby record, but I'm sure you know, it yeah. was. It was, I definitely remember that. Um, and just going, my God, you know, this is a, this is quite a thing. Yeah. Um, and so that that is feels like a very, you know, dull answer. But I think that is the you know that is the, yeah. the real answer. You know, being able to, you know, it was a very important, you know, again in terms of music as defining your identity. Yeah. That was definitely an enormous chunk of that. But again, when I look back at Bristol, there were one of the things that was interesting about Bristol was there were there were a lot of bands that were local that you went to see. So the Blue Aeroplanes was another band, you know, the kind of jangly. Great shirt. Of, you know, wannabe kind of Bob Dylan-y, you know, spoken word stuff. But again, a really interesting band because they, they also had a DJ. Mm. So, the D, you know, they, they were a, a, and a, and a great band to see live. And you would see them live all the time in Bristol, obviously. So they were a band that, again, was really important for me in that, in that era. Um, so, so was you like sort of torn then between sort of going and watching live bands, and then you know was that whole kind of thing in Bristol with like the, I mean I, I'm basing this on what I've read in the books and stuff, and you know like the sound system parties and and, and things like that, and and you know the, the, was the street art as 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 obvious as it is in the books and the you know so the the, the, so when you're slightly more on the posh end of Bristol <laughs> I was not going to you know blues parties and St Paul's right um, okay but but certainly the street art completely was you know you yeah. would see you would see I do walk around Bristol and think behind a couple of layers of whitewash on that wall there is a 3D piece yeah if you could start peel it off I'm sure it'd be worth a fortune yeah somehow. um so you certainly saw that but actually I was much more the um the the sort of I was in the kind of indie band yeah. scene there. And then there was also that, that sort of morphed into the kind of, you know, what became sort of acid jazz and that sure. sort of stuff. So there was a lot of that for the, for the, for the white kids. What well, <laughs> other indie bands were coming out of Bristol at that so point? So there was people like, there was the Chesterfields, the Brilliant Corners, yeah. um, that really kind of jangly, yeah. you know. They, one of the great things about Bristol at that time was every summer um, there was in... Ashton Court, which is a big park over there, there was this huge free festival. So for two days in the summer, you'd go and sit in a field with all your friends and watch, and it would be, you know, you'd have, um, I can't remember what it's called, there was a band that was basically Adrian Utley from Portishead would be playing in one stage, and then you'd have 
um, Automatic Lamini, which ended up, PJ Harvey ended up being a member, would be on another stage. Mm -hmm. The Blue Aeroplanes would be over, the Brilliant Corners were there. The Sears were a kind of um, much more kind of rock, mm. rock band. So there were all these bands coming out, and you did see them a lot. So it yeah. was, was a really, it was a, it was a brilliant, you know, place, I think, to grow up. Yeah feeling like your kind of local community yeah. was kind of important and interesting and there was exciting things happening and then that that sort of blossoming a couple of years later when suddenly it was famous yeah was really i'm sure it's the same as anyway. i'm sure if you're in obviously if you're in manchester in the in the yeah. couple of years before that exploded yeah. you would be seeing all these amazing bands and then suddenly everyone else was seeing them so. yeah yeah, I've, I've just, I'm, I'm always curious for, you know, when I've, when I've spoke to, you know, musicians and such that, are, that were doing music in Manchester at that point, yeah. you know, and, and just speaking to people like Mark Moore and wanting to know about what the Mud Club was like, yeah. you know, you know yeah. what, what was these moments like? And, and obviously, when you talk Bristol, you instantly just want to know what was that scene like with yeah. the, the sort of, you know, the, <clears throat> the sound systems and such. Um, okay. Final track, and you can you can play DJ now, and uh, and you can get to um, basically let people know a song. That, that, well, well, the question is a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. So it's been funny talking about this music from because almost all the music we've spoken about has been a long, long time ago. Sure. <laughs> um, and so the last, so I left Mix Mag in in two thousand and two or something, moved to. Um, Face was at the face for a few years after that until we we unfortunately closed it down because it didn't work, um, and then got much more into. I then started up this music gear blog in two thousand and four, two thousand and five, which was just talking about music gear and the way musicians make music as a kind of just from a sort of from a fan's point of view. So at that time, a lot of stuff around music gear was incredibly earnest and serious. So the idea was if you bought a £4,000 guitar with an £8,000 amp, then somehow you would sound amazing. My way of looking at it was that's obviously nonsense. If you're a good guitarist, you'll sound great. If you're a bad guitarist, you won't. But it's kind of nice to own an interesting piece of equipment. Mm. And, and the stories between the, behind that equipment is interesting. The stories about how musicians make their records I find really interesting yeah um, so you had that kind of so that was that was writing at that stage about about the business of making music and then after that I got into designing music equipment and sort of learning how to do electronics learning how to make things and you start off making like guitar pedals are very very simple electronically they've got like six or seven components and they are quite simple to design I then got into this kind of modular synthesizer scene that people are people are getting into now, um, and started designing things for that. And that was a that kind of opened up this whole world of much more kind of weird and difficult and experimental music. And again, it's still going back to being the being the kind of sixteen year old in Revolver Records in Bristol, and going, I really want to actually understand that difficult and yeah. weird music. And I think probably about you know, eight or nine years when it came out, um, I read a book by Alec Ross called The Rested Noise, which is a history of music in the 20th century, essentially from the kind of classical music side. So it starts with um, uh, Stravinsky doing the Rite of Spring, 
and there being a riot and um and it's an absolutely wonderful book because it, it just leads you through the 20th century in the stories about the way um, music evolved and the way music became difficult and interesting. Yeah. And it, you get to Stockhausen and you get to um, Lamont Young and the kind of New York scene that then sort of bled into the Velvet Underground, mm -hmm. those, those sorts of things. And so the last sort of um, eight or nine years, you know, just been discovering a lot more weird and difficult and interesting music. And some of it's music that you don't really want to necessarily listen to. So I will read any number of books about John Cage because he's such a fascinating, interesting character and he had such an extraordinary influence on the 20th century and on the way music works. I don't really sit around listening to, to John Cage records yeah. because they do tend to be quite quite difficult yeah um uh but along the way you just i have discovered a lot of music that i really love so this is finally getting to the to the point of this so a lot of that music made by the kind of new york minimalist composers of philip glass and steve reich i can listen to all day long and the record that i've, that I've mentioned here is a record by roberto cacciapaglia glad you said that which i think is I don't know. It's one of those <laughs> words i've only ever seen written down no idea how to pronounce it the record is called uh, Se Note in Logica, which is six notes in logic, I guess, mm -hmm. in Italian. Um, if you're looking this up, make sure you get that record, which has got a picture of uh, a kind of tennis court on the front. He's got a lot of other records, which are just kind of terrible new age, yeah. like, which are not, not good. But this is an amazing record, which I think he made in, uh, I think it's probably about 1978, nine, that sort of I'm not sure. And it's a, a kind of, I guess it's an orchestra, or certainly strings, and an opera singer, and a computer that he had borrowed from kind of IBM or Hewlett Packard or something. Yeah. Um, so it's it's this kind of it's the it's it's got that sort of um, Steve Wright kind of minimal, repetitive yeah. thing going. It's got bits of this vocal in it, and it's got this kind of bleeps and bloops and other bits in it. But it is just a beautiful, amazing piece of music to listen to. So the 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 kind of that's the sort of there are in that kind of world of difficult music. Yeah. Um, what's been fantastic is finding these pieces of music that are also just amazing to listen to and come out of that kind of interesting kind of world. I mean what I have just realised is uh, as we we're about to wrap is uh didn't actually talk about the song uh, that soundtracked your year's club in what that track was oh yeah so i, I <laughs> the song I, it was funny when you asked that question the first song that popped into my head was um music is the answer by danny tanaglia mm -hmm. i can't in all honesty suggest that is in some way the best one or yeah. that it is the one that soundtracked my year's clubbing i don't even remember hearing it in clubs yeah hearing danny tanaglia playing it um, I suppose it it represented the sort of you know I I you know I really loved listening to music like that in clubs because it's the I've always had a very very high tolerance for repetition and I've always really enjoyed 
you know, listening to the same thing for 16 minutes or yeah. 20 minutes. Do you think uh, that comes from that, the uh, sex mix of uh, Well, no, <laughs> Frankie. I didn't like that. Maybe it is. I haven't thought of that. Yeah. But, that, but, but I think that's a great, you know, that, the, those are the sorts of records that I really, really enjoy. Yeah. So, but I think it's not, it's very arbitrary picking that as a record. Yeah. You know, out of all of the other, you could have picked any one of other, you know, hundreds and hundreds of records from that era. Like anything, we, you know, I often sort of have these conversations with guests on here and these song choices change daily, right? Mm. It's like whatever mood you're in when you write them down, yeah. I expect it to be different the next day. Yeah. Tom, thank you very much. There you go. That was Tom Whitwell. He was an absolute joy. Um, it was, like I said at the beginning, it was nice to have my, my music knowledge uh, quizzed and prodded. And, and yeah, he was... Um, had a great, a, a, you know, obviously if you're the editor of, of Mix Mag, your, your knowledge of music is going to be great. And growing up in, in Bristol as well at that time, you know, you're going to get exposed to so much amazing music and culture. And uh, and it was nice to sort of ask, you know, what, what that was like. Uh, and I loved his honesty that, you know, he wasn't at the uh, the super cool uh, uh, sort of... Uh, uh, what do you call it, sound system parties because uh, he was from the slightly posher side of town. There's nothing wrong with that and it's lovely that uh, he he was so open and honest about it all. Um, yeah, really enjoyed that chat. Um, thanks again to Tom and, and thanks ever so much to, to you lot for listening and I will see you next week. And remember, if you can't be bothered to wait until next week, get over to Patreon because there's a standalone episode over there each week and if this is the first time you've listened to this podcast go and have a look in the back catalogue because there's episodes with blimey uh dj yoda uh chic uh suede oh blimey who else have we been talking to lately the mystery jets oh there's 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 a real who's who james lavelle go and have a have a route around in the in the back catalogue in the archives um and better still click subscribe and then it'll just pop up in your your listening device each week we're also on the social medias so if you see us on there give us a like love share retweet drop us a message and you can find out about all of this at www.offthebeatentrackpodcast.com have a smashing week i'll see you next week bye bye oh yeah sorry i've butted in yet again i just want to quickly tell you about this magazine it's called pod bible now pod bible is the new essential guide to podcasts it's put together alongside Spotify and Acast and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, and there's features on Jade Adams and there's just an abundance of of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free so every other month there'll be a new edition out so go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well podbiblemag.com it's off the beat and track podcast on the distraction pieces network you
make stew with him. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.